Hey, good morning, friends. Very nice to be with all of you today. Uh, those in the room, those on the live stream, great to be worshiping with you. Uh, hey, so we're in this series called American Idols. And as we've noted in this, generally, an idol is a good thing that we've made into an ultimate thing. We usually don't start with something horrible and make that an idol. That would be too transparent, too seen through. Usually it's something that's good and we make it something that's ultimate. And so in the series, we've been asking the question, what are those things that we are most prone to make into ultimate things? Uh, as Americans, every culture has a tendency towards certain idols. What are those idols that we are most prone uh, to, uh, or those things we are most prone to make idols of? So. We've talked about freedom and money and this whole kind of bigger, faster, more sort of dynamic. And today we're talking about the idol of romance, sex, and marriage. Good things that God gives us, good gifts that we have a tendency to make into idols. So uh, let's, let's start our thinking about this thousands of years back and start thinking about the goddess Aphrodite. Have you heard of that one? Seen her pictures? Paintings of Venus, that's the Roman name for her and all this stuff. Venus was her name, etc., etc. Uh, Aphrodite was one of the chief gods or goddesses in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, everywhere, everyone, whatever gods you worship, there was a strong chance that Aphrodite was going to be one of them. And she was the goddess of sex and romantic love and beauty. And the key thing that you want to remember about Aphrodite as we talk about this topic today, the key thing about the goddess Aphrodite, the, the message, the story there was that she was irresistible. The message was your romantic and sexual desires cannot be resisted. They have to be indulged. You cannot refuse these. And you didn't. In the ancient world, uh, virtually every sexual desire was in bounds, particularly if you were a man, even more so if you had money or power or both. Uh, but here's the thing. A New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points this out, and I think he's totally on. He says, Aphrodite has become one of our chief gods today. Uh, we don't know her by that name. We don't think about her as being the goddess behind so much of our culture, but she is totally there. In our culture, when it comes to our romantic desires, our sexual desires, uh, the message is that one cannot possibly be expected to resist these. Any attempt to repress such desires are vestiges of a puritanical age, something that needs to be done away with as archaic, unrealistic at best, and harmful at worst. And as, as we've noted too in this series, um, uh, the way that idols work, it starts with a deceptive idea that appeals to our disordered desires and then it gets filtered into society until the point where it becomes normal and just seems like the way that things are. And I, I was thinking about this message in particular and thinking about, okay, for me, where did this message, where did the spirit of Aphrodite, if you will, uh, first kind of get introduced into my life in terms of just being something that's everywhere? And 
and this may not be the place, but the thing I came up to was Happy Days. So it, I don't know if any of you even remember this show. It's so old. And even when I was a kid, it was all reruns. But every day after school, I would come home and I would pour myself a big bowl of cereal. That was my after school snack. And I would sit down in front of the television and I would watch reruns of Happy Days. You know, and it's fun and innocent and laughter and da 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 and uh, all this, you know, 50s sitcom thing. Uh, but, but looking back on it, here's what I see. Tell me if you remember this at all about the show. But uh, the way that this idol, of romance, sex, and marriage, the way that this works in our culture, it takes a couple different forms, right? Form number one, we would see with Fonzie. The Fonz, motorcycle, leather jacket, the coolest man alive, right? And for Fonzie, uh, what this usually looked like was him rolling into the diner where everybody hung out and he would have one or actually usually two girls on his arm, one for each arm, because when you're as cool as Fonzie and you happen to have two arms, you should have a girl for each arm. And, and he, was, he was just kind of the quintessential ladies' man. And that's kind of one side of this coin. And maybe this is more in the category of sexual lust. And maybe as we think about how this permeates our society, it's, it's seen more in things like our hookup culture and Tinder and similar apps and uh, just how ubiquitous it is that if, if you are in a dating relationship, it's supposed to be a sexual relationship. And you know, the Christian notion of not having sex before you're married is like a punchline, right? That's sort of the Fonzie side of things. And I think even, even as a pretty young kid, like I recognized, okay, I am not near cool enough that that is ever going to be my narrative, right? So, so I kind of thought, well, I'm settling for the other side the more average guy path of people like Richie and Potsy and Ralph. And for them, the show week in, week out was the sort of quest for romantic love. It's, it's looking around, it's searching, it's dating, it's finding that one person that's finally going to make me happy. And that side of this narrative I think is, is the far more dangerous for us, as it's, it's a lot harder to spot. On the surface, it seems fine, and in many ways it, it is or it can be. But when that becomes an ultimate thing, when that becomes the defining quest of life, it becomes something that is, is highly destructive. Uh, and of course, this, this narrative that the ultimate goal of life is to find that right person, to find that one who is going to make you happy, who's gonna meet your needs. That narrative is reinforced in every song, every TV show, every romantic comedy ever since, that this is the highest goal in life. Now, here's where I think this maybe really comes home for you and I. Of all the idols that we're gonna talk about in the course of this series, I think perhaps this is the one that finds its place most easily in the church. Then in the church, we have a religious version of this message that often goes like this. Your highest goal as a Christian is to find that perfect person and get married. We just lump marriage in there. The, 
the message is not that different from that in the culture around us, but we have this tendency, this message, which is sometimes explicit, but often just implicit, that your highest aim as a Christian man or woman is to find that perfect person that's going to make you happy, to marry them, have a family, and then focus on it. Right? You're going to take and just, okay, this is the place. And all kinds of faulty messaging has often come along with that. Uh, a narrative that says, well, if you live right, God will bring you that perfect person. Or if you don't have sex before your marriage, then once you are married, you're going to have a wonderful, dynamic sex life. All these, these narratives where you, you have to ask, okay, where is that written exactly? Uh, because none of that is actually guaranteed in Scripture. And in fact, even this picture of marriage being sort of the default that we would pursue, uh, that's, that's not there either. And consequently, being single, man, that can get really tricky within the church. Where sometimes you're, you feel or you're made to feel as if you're a second-class citizen. Or as if singleness is a problem that has to be fixed because it doesn't match with that particular message. And, and that's, that is a difficult thing to carry, friends. And think about this. In our church, 20% of the adults in our church are single, either never married or widowed or divorced. It can be difficult to find your place in a focus on the family world if that is the message that you are receiving. Now, uh, we're going to contrast this with what the Bible teaches. And whichever path we're talking about, whether it's more the path of sexual lust or the, the path of romance and marriage, uh, whichever it is within this particular idolatry, the message goes something like this. The idol says to us, I won't find happiness if I don't find a romantic relationship. Uh, in contrast, we'll see in the scriptures, it teaches something very different, but we'll sum up the scriptures teaching this morning this way. Romantic love is good, but it's too small to satisfy our ultimate desires. It is a good thing. It is a gift from God, but it's not big enough to actually satisfy our souls, right? The fantasy is that if we find that one special person, that soulmate, that all will be right with the world. In other words, we often look to that other person to be a sort of savior for us. But can I tell you something that at some level you already know? Those who make that other person into that thing often end up crushing the relationship under a weight that it was never made to bear. The whole narrative is a lie. It's a gift if we find it. But it isn't large enough to satisfy our ultimate needs. And this, I think, is, is where it, it sort of starts to get real. Because the truth is, you and I need an actual savior. We need a deeper love that can free us to a point where any experience of other loves that we do end up having in life can support that rather than be the thing that's meant to hold it all up. 
we need relationship with the God who loves us, and we need the spiritual family that God intended for us. All else is gravy, as they say. So we're going to ask this question as we go through this. Who do I trust, God or the idol of romance, sex, and marriage? Do I find Jesus to be more trustworthy or Aphrodite? And I think maybe nothing in the scriptures highlights this, uh, the presence of this idol so much as uh, the scriptures teaching on singleness. The Bible elevates both marriage and singleness. Uh, and we're going, to, uh, uh, we're going to look at that and then we'll end this morning with a couple of practices that help us uh, put the various loves in their proper place in our hearts. So let's pray and we'll look at the scriptures together. God, we pray that you would give us hearts that are open, ears that would hear what your spirit says to the church. God, that you would uh, cause us to see uh, what it is that you teach us in the scriptures and to live according to it. As folks who are married, as folks who are single, as those raising kids or grandkids, we pray, God, that we would have a proper perspective of the loves that you would lead us to. Uh, God, expose the idols in our hearts, and we pray, Jesus, that you would be Lord over all things in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the first thing that we see the scriptures teaching us about this, and this comes from Jesus, and it's that both marriage and singleness are holy callings. Both of these are holy callings. Matthew 19 says some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Well, then why did Jesus say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. Key phrase here. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now here the protest. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. All right, now here's the debate that Jesus walks into in this story. There's a debate going on in the first century between this one group of religious teachers and this other group of religious teachers. And those on one side thought they had found a biblical loophole into what the scriptures taught about marriage, where if they tired of the wife that they were with, they could trade her in for a different one and they could start the process again, thus being faithful to one wife. It just wasn't always the same wife. 
right? So this is what they're trying to draw Jesus into. And Jesus, in a word, says no. That isn't how this marriage thing works. And look at what he does here. He affirms marriage as a calling from God, but not just as a convenience for our pleasure, not just as a tool to meet our relational or our sexual needs, but as a holy calling. Right? He puts God at the center of this. He said it's God at the beginning that made them male and female. It's God at the beginning who took two and joined them into one. It's God who established marriage as an institution that's meant to be permanent unless uh, you know, something so large as adultery and scripture gives a couple other rationales too, but not many, uh, uh, unless something just nukes that relationship and it can no longer stand. And Jesus says, as such, you're not free to reshape it into something that you feel better fits your preferences and your desires. It is meant to be as God intended it to be, and he calls them back to that. And the disciples, disciples, they, you can tell kind of where they fall in this debate. They have this reaction, and they're like, what? Like, seriously? You, you're married and you're in it for good? Say, so maybe it's better if, if you don't marry at all, right? There's no escape hatch. Like, I'm not sure I want this. And, and Jesus surprises them by saying, you know what, you're right. Marriage is good, but singleness is too. And he challenges them to this. And this, so this talk in, in here about eunuchs, let's, let's talk about eunuchs for a moment. There's something you didn't anticipate when you were eating your <laughs> cornflakes this morning. Let's talk about eunuchs. But Jesus gives us kind of three categories of people in here, right? Uh, first, there's, there's those who are married, and, and he says to them, you know, marriage is a good choice, but you have to engage in it in the way God has intended, not as what you wish it was. Uh, and then, he says, there's, there's those who are not able to marry. Those who are born eunuchs, or those who are made eunuchs by men. Those who, in other words, there's a physical or a medical reason where they aren't capable of sexual function, and so, Marriage is not an option for them in that way. Or they're, they're made eunuchs. Something has happened along the way, uh, rather deliberate or by accident, where they are no longer going to be capable of marrying. <coughs> but the bottom line, for whatever reason, marriage doesn't happen for them. And, you know, I, I have, and I imagine you also have, uh, many friends in this category who would have loved to get married, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't come about in their life. And Jesus acknowledges that. And then he adds in this third group, and he says, the, there's those who choose singleness for kingdom reasons. Those who determine that they will be better able to live for God as a single person than they would as a married person. And hold on to that one, because Paul is going to elaborate uh, in this as we look into... Uh, the New Testament letters. But I, I have a, a number of friends who are in these, these last two categories, those who either uh, they, they wanted to be married and it hasn't happened, or they were married and they're not married now, and they've embraced this as a calling and said, okay, God, what does it mean for me to live for you as a single person? And, and I have those two who have, have 
just uh, uh, kind of concluded, okay, this is the calling God has for me. And for kingdom reasons, I am going to be single um, and use my singleness to serve God. Uh, so, you know, I, I think here of uh, the Side B group that we have meet here uh, on a Tuesday night once a month. Um, gay believers who aren't attracted to the opposite sex. Uh, but they've decided I'm, I'm not going to disobey God in terms of living out my sexuality. I'm going to use my singleness to serve him, and they've embraced that. Or I think here of, um, I actually have a, a lot of friends in this category, but I, I think of my friend JR, who I've, I've known since, um, since seminary. And, uh, and he just kind of decided early on, I think I'm going to be able to serve God better as a single person. And, and he's had an amazing, fruitful ministry career. We planted churches about the same time. He's gone on to lead a huge church planning network uh, that's just international now, has seen thousands of churches planted as a result. And, and he will tell you this is in part because I, I made a choice that, that I, I could be one of those. I could serve God better as a man who is single. Uh, Jesus, he's laying this out, he's saying marriage is good, it's a calling from God. But this is the twist his disciples didn't see coming. Singleness is good too, it is also a calling from God. Uh, now, think about this in terms of our idol, friends. What does this say to our idol? The idol says you have to fulfill your desires for romantic or sexual love, even if that means breaking your vow to your spouse, even that, if that means being disobedient to God, even if that means uh, reestablishing the terms for what marriage means. Uh, Jesus says you don't. There is another option, there's another path of continuing to grow in love with the one that you are married to, or of opting out of marriage altogether. I'm just saying no. Uh, singleness is also a calling. Uh, now, not that it is without struggle, right? And all of my single friends will tell you that it can be really hard. Uh, but almost all of those I know who have embraced this as part of their calling uh, are living pretty darn satisfying lives. There is a richness there that they can attest to as well. And for some, the absence of romantic love has created space for a lot of other loves, for some very rich relationships and family and friendships and church. And that's one of the lies that this idol tells us, that not having romantic love means that you won't have love. And that need not be the case. Uh, the fact that this is the path that Jesus chose that alone should give us pause, that the most fulfilled person who ever walked the earth was never married, never had sex, but he lived a rich and full and joyful life. Romantic love, sex, marriage, these are gifts, they're blessing, but they aren't the only loves. Uh, they aren't the highest loves, they aren't something that we can't live a full life if we don't have. And Jesus teaches that both marriage and singleness are callings and that they are holy. 
the second thing that we see the New Testament teaching us here, and we're fast forwarding to the teachings of Paul and the New Testament church. Uh, Paul also honors both marriage and singleness, but he actually kind of goes a step further and gives a not so subtle nudge towards singleness. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and the point here being that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. 1 Corinthians 7, it's actually a really long chapter. I'm just going to read you some snippets, but you might want to check out the rest of it on your own later. But Paul writes this. He says, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, to live a celibate life. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Now you see what Paul's doing here? Right? He presents both options, marriage and singleness, as gifts from God. And again, what does this say to our idol? Our cultural idol tells us that singleness is a curse that we need to be rid of. But both Jesus and Paul say they're not. These are actually gifts from God. And, and Paul, going so far as to say it's totally fine if you get married, right? You're not sinning if you do. And he goes on later in the passage to say, you know, that person must belong to the Lord. There's some stuff around this, but... He says, all things being equal, I actually prefer that you choose singleness. Now, I've shared this, but this, this really challenged me a few years back in kind of a fresh way, having kids and listening to how I talk to my kids about their future. You know, and it was always, yeah, you know, when you, when you grow up and you get married, in our house it was when you grow up and you marry a man who loves Jesus, right? That was like the line. And really being convicted at one point of saying, I don't know that that's the calling that God has for my kids. I need to talk about this differently. Uh, because both callings are good and both are portrayed as a gift from God. And I, uh, I dare not predetermine what God's will for them is going to be. But it's challenging. In a lot of ways, I was challenged with the question, who do I trust more, Jesus or Aphrodite? When I think of the future I want for my children, whose message do I believe more? Now, again, does the Bible say that romantic love is wrong? No, far from it. It's portrayed as something that's beautiful and true and a gift. In the Proverbs, it says the one that has found a, a spouse has found blessing from God. But as an ultimate thing, when it becomes the thing that we think is going to make the rest of life work, the thing that's going to bring happiness and that without it we are lost, then it becomes an idol and it will enslave us rather than enrich us. And it, you know, as self-evident as it seems to us that this is just kind of the way it should be, uh, it's it's actually only about 200 years that this way of thinking was actually a thing in Western culture. It's very, very new. Uh, this idea that the goal of life is to find romantic love and you marry for romantic love and all of this. 
for thousands of years prior to that, our, our ancestors would have looked at us and said, are you crazy? You're gonna try to build something as difficult as a marriage on something as fickle as romantic love? It's not gonna work. It's not gonna last. But for us, it's just the norm. Consider one example here. So when we think about the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, and sort of the, the promise that was implicit in that, uh, that uh, a deeper sexual freedom was going to be great for the flourishing of people, and especially that it would be great for women, right? That was one of the injustices that the sexual revolution uh, meant to reverse, was this idea that men sort of inherently have all this sexual freedom, and women should be afforded the same opportunity to explore a full range of sexual possibilities, unshackled from the bounds of puritanical norms and Christian teaching, etc. So, um, there's a bajillion examples, but just to, to give you one, I was reminded of by a friend this last week. So there's, there's a book making the rounds right now uh, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Have you heard of this? It's a lot of headlines around it. Uh, the author is a woman named Louise Perry. She's a respected journalist from the UK. And it's, it's causing a stir because it's so contrary to our typical narrative around this topic. Uh, she's a respected journalist, she's, she's a sex, secular feminist, she's not a Christian, uh, but you, you look at her book and it's, I mean, it sounds almost like a summary of the Bible's teachings on this. She says that by every measure, when we look at how women have fared in the years since the sexual revolution, they're losing and losing badly, whether you're looking at uh, satisfaction in marriage, uh, satisfaction in sex life, family and child rearing, their economic situation, uh, the huge rise of sexually transmitted diseases among women, being victims of divorce, pick a category. She says it doesn't matter. Women have lost as a result of this. Um, this might be the best way to kind of summarize her book, but I just want to read you some of the chapter titles in the book. And listen to this. It sounds like summaries of, of biblical teaching, but she's coming from a totally different place. But these are some chapters. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Loveless sex is not empowering. Consent is not enough. Marriage is good. And then the concluding chapter is called, Listen to Your Mother. <laughs> right? These could be the points of the sermon. But these are the conclusions of a journalist who's been studying this for years. Uh, she says this, I'll give you one quote. She says, uh, one of her things is we have to not just recommend this for women, but find a way to incentivize this for women. She writes this, she says, in order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, that protects the economic interests of mothers and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. And we might add to that, Jesus and Paul say that there's actually a second technology too, and that's purposeful singleness within the kingdom of God. Friends, is it possible that our idols in this area are leading us astray? 
we have to ask ourselves who we trust more, Jesus or Aphrodite. Well, Paul says both marriage and singleness are gifts, and he also says this. He says both marriage and singleness present challenges and opportunities. He writes, if you do get married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I am trying to spare you these problems. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. So singleness is challenging. And the last thing I want to do is paint an overly romantic picture of single life. Um, you know, and, and most of my single friends will say about this, that when, when they talk about the difficulties, they're not even talking about sex, they're talking about companionship, right? One of my gay friends is fond of saying, I can live without sex, I just can't live without intimacy. And that is totally correct. And why we need to work at really being family for one another within the church. But Paul is reminding his listeners that marriage is challenging too. And our idol makes us prone to painting an overly romantic picture of married life. Right, so many of us assume that marriage is automatically going to make us happy, and it won't. It's hard work. Uh, it can be very rewarding, but it isn't automatic. And as, as one who meets with a lot of couples who are not happy, I'll tell you, it's, it's sad seeing married couples who are lonely. That being the chief complaint within a marriage, not just outside of it. Consider some stats. Nearly 40% of marriages end in divorce. Another 10 to 15%, a couple separate, but don't divorce. Another 7% stay together, but say that they are chronically unhappy. Right? That is more than half the people who decide to marry. It doesn't turn out the way they expected. What the idol said was going to happen did not. That's instructive for us. It's significant, too, that cultures where they still practice arranged marriages actually report higher rates of marital satisfaction than ours. Think about that. They don't marry for romantic love. There's other factors that go in there. And they end up being happier. And they divorce less. And they report more sexual fulfillment. Right? That You wouldn't expect that, listening to our idol's narrative, but it's true. And perhaps the idol whispering to us, finding that person is going to make your life right. Perhaps that idol is lying. And we need to listen more deeply for what Jesus teaches us about where relational fulfillment comes from. I was talking to um, 
to a friend of mine, John, uh, who's a very mature believer, single man, um, is uh, never married, and he lives a very fulfilled life. Uh, he will be quick to tell you, and I was asking him one day, you know, are you, are you ever bummed about not being married? And he says, sure. There's a lot of things about marriage but, that I think I would love. Um, um, he's, he's about 60 now, by the way. And he, he said, at the same time, as I look back on my life, he says, I've been able to be in ministry my whole life. I've traveled the world. I've been an athlete. Uh, he says, I, I have rich, deep friendships. I have great relationships with family. He says, yeah, sometimes it's really hard. He says, it's been a good choice. It's gone very well for me. I have another friend, Joan, who, um, you know, she's, she's in her 30s. People have been trying to set her up in relationships since her early 20s, and she's, she's just not that interested, right? She's like, well, you know, sometimes it's appealing, sometimes it's not. But she says, I, I've decided God's calling me to singleness. She says, I, I don't think I'd be a great parent, but I'm an amazing aunt. And she lives into it very well. She says, I've got a ton of time and energy to serve my church, to serve different families that I'm friends with, to be in their lives in ways that are really significant and special. She says, I wouldn't trade it. And then, of course, marriage provides opportunities, too. You know, when Samantha and I were, were first dating, um, her pastor said to me, you know, if if you don't think that the two of you are going to be able to better serve God together than apart, you shouldn't get married. And it, it really challenged me. It, I didn't want to hear that. Um, how to best serve God was not topmost in my mind at that moment. Uh, but it, it, it is a word that we really took to heart and prayed over. And, and I think, you know, looking back on our marriage, we would both say without question that being married has enhanced our ability to serve God. It's what he had for us, and it, it's certainly been a blessing. But friends, what I want you to hear in this is not that one is good and that one is bad, that the scriptures elevate them both. You have your examples like Paul, who said, I'm going to serve God best as one who is single. And you have examples like Priscilla and Aquila, who said, no, we're going to serve God best as those who are married. Both, both bring challenges and both bring opportunities as well. I want to end with uh, two practices for us to be thinking about as, as we're considering what does it look like to live in a way that challenges the narrative of our culture's idol and embraces instead the teaching of Jesus on this. Two practices. One is embrace your status as calling. Whether you're married or whether you are single, embrace the status that you are living in as a calling from God. And, and that means it's something that you are praying about and you're thinking about, being curious about. God, what does the station in life that you have brought me to, what does this say about how I might serve you best? And to really lean into that question. Friends, there are going to be opportunities that are made available to you that wouldn't be there for you if you were married or that wouldn't be there for you if you were single. Embrace your status not as incidental to your calling but as one aspect of the calling 
that God has brought you to. And if, you are, if you're a teen or you're, you're a young adult, I think really this means praying about what path God might have for you. Not automatically assuming it's one or the other, but really considering, God, what is it that you have for me in this way? For parents and grandparents, I think this is in the way that we talk to our kids or grandkids about their future as well. Really giving serious consideration to this question of God, what is it that you are calling me to? And second practice is this, it's to prioritize the family of God. I don't think that we do this well in uh, 21st century church life. What if, what if we started to think differently about what it means that the church is a family? I think most often the thinking we fall into is, is kind of backwards. We think about uh, being part of a nuclear family or being single and that being uh, sort of part of this loosely connected group of people called the church. But what if we sort of flip that on its head? And we said, first and foremost, God has called me to be part of his family, which is the church. And whether I am married or singled, I exist within that, instead of the other way around. It's not so much a question of how does the church fit into my life, my family life, but it's rather how does my family or my single self, how does that fit into the life of this larger church? There's several episodes in the Gospels where Jesus addresses this, but one in particular that comes to mind is Jesus saying, uh, Jesus saying to uh, the people when his family is coming to look for him, saying, we want to talk to you, and he's, he's saying back to the crowd in response, who is my family? He says, my brothers and my sisters, my mother, they are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, to prioritize the church as family and find our place within that. Uh, one way that this has kind of happened for us through the years is um, you know, we've, we've tried to be, be very aware of kind of who is at our holidays and who's around our dinner table and who's at birthday parties. And, um, and if that looks all like married couples about our age saying, well, that doesn't reflect the body of Christ. And there have been singles and there have been folks who have kind of passed into our lives for long, beautiful seasons where they're part of all of those things. And we've been so much richer because of that. And I know they have too. What would it look like to put the emphasis on the church's family first and our nuclear family or our single self within? This is a lot to consider, isn't it? As we come to the communion table this morning, I want us to be prayerful and careful as we are thinking about what does it mean to be part of Christ's family? Perhaps think about it this way. As we, uh, as we look at communion, the table is the place where the family of God gathers. Uh, is our mindset such that we see that as a table just for our family, or do we see us as part of the larger church family? 
that might be among those things that we need to offer to God this morning as we come to the table and come to prayer. This is our prayer as we come to communion, our confession. We pray, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.